0: head to my website simonmundy.com or amazon waterstone smiths places like that to get your copy
1: there's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plushcare plushcare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe fda approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and zepbound for those who qualify Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and
2: appreciation.
0: Hello and welcome to the Life Lessons Podcast with me, Simon Mundy. This podcast has a simple mission, to have discussions that reveal something important about life and how best to live it. My guests range from the biggest sporting names on the planet through to neuroscientists, philosophers, psychologists and world-renowned thinkers. We talk about things like how to skillfully relate to uncomfortable thoughts and feelings, the power of acceptance and psychological flexibility how to get your circadian rhythms in sync to feel your best right through to the nature of reality. These conversations and the bite size episodes have the power to change your life. The general consensus in society tends to be that to have success in any field requires early specialisation and many hours of deliberate practice, a.k.a. the Tiger Woods model. And if you dabble or delay, you'll never catch up with those who got a head start. In this episode, author David Epstein dispels this widely held myth. He explains that the best way to succeed is by sampling widely, gaining a breadth of experience, taking detours and juggling many interests, which could be coined the Roger Federer model. In other words, by developing range, which is also the
2: title of David's outstanding book.
0: David, how's it going?
2: Very well, thanks for having me.
0: It's an absolute pleasure. Uh, a long-time fan of yours, as you know. I got in touch okay. because um, I initially was, uh, wanted to speak to you about your, your book, The Sports Gene. Hmm. But you have a new book, and it's <laughs> called Range. And this book blew my mind. And I'm not even just saying that to butter you up. It was incredible.
2: I appreciate that very much. It was, a, it was quite a challenge, so it's gratifying to hear that.
0: Yeah, I mean, this is chock-full of really eye-opening, paradigm-shifting stuff, isn't it? Can, can you, you can acknowledge that even as the author.
2: Well, I, I appreciate that, and I think some of it just has to do with that I take longer to do my work. You know, when people ask me, how do I write a book? I, I don't really know, so I asked my wife, and she said, I know, you go upstairs and come down two years later. <laughs> so so okay. I think that's part of what makes me look smarter.
0: Okay. <laughs> I'll tell you another thing as well. So Malcolm Gladwell, who, of course, is the guy who is best known for making the 10,000-hour rule really famous mm-hmm. and really popularizing it. He actually has written a bit of a recommendation on the front of your book. And I find it amazing that a guy who, in many ways, you you, you know, chop him off at the knees with some <laughs> of your work, and yet he, you managed to get him to sing your praises. I mean, that's, uh, that's quite something as well.
2: Well, you know, he and I were just—the first time we ever met was at this— uh set up for a debate at at this event called the MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference, which is founded by the general manager of the Houston Rockets. Um, and we were set up for this debate and and you know we got to know each other. And we were just invited back in March, and this is on YouTube, and and toward the end he says, you know, I've changed my mind. I think I conflated two ideas. The idea that getting developing expertise requires a lot of practice with the idea that in order to become great at X, you should start doing X as early as possible and only do X. And I now feel like I conflated those and, and I was wrong about that. So I thought that was incredibly open-minded, um, you know, and, and interesting of him to say.
0: And that actually taps in with some of the things in your book about the idea of, of being really open-minded. You gave um, Let's not get too, give too much away at this stage, okay. but for example, like Charles Darwin, who, you know, was radically open-minded. So props to Malcolm Gladwell for being open-minded, that's fair to say.
2: A- absolutely i mean that's the in chapter 10 about the the people who develop the best judgment about the world essentially their main trait is is they're constantly updating their mental models which which i would say is is what he does a lot
0: so people out there who have rigidly held beliefs for example politicians they are they are lauded for having rigidly held long standing beliefs and are criticized for flip flopping but actually what you're saying and, and argue absolutely conclusively and prove it with many, many examples is, is that that ain't necessarily the way to go.
2: No, that's right. In fact, the the people who developed these best judgment and they were gauged in this 20-year study, um, where They had to make 80,000 probability predictions about politics and economics and all these things. Uh, one of their one of their common traits was flip flopping, actually, and it, it showed up sort of in everything they did. They would they would use the words however a lot more than the words moreover, for example. So they would challenge their own arguments instead of attempting to reinforce them, and often change their mind.
0: And flip flopping is absolutely key. So right, let, let's get into this. And you give this wonderful example of. Two titans of sport. Mm-hmm. On the one hand, Roger Federer. He's, in many people's opinion, the greatest of all time tennis mm-hmm. player. And then on the other side, you've got Tiger Woods, who, uh, similar in many ways in terms of the level of success, perhaps dropped off a bit more in recent years until this year. Um, but their way that they got to where, to where their, their standing in the game was very different. So can you just yeah, tell us the Roger and Tiger story briefly and how, how that relates to, to the lessons?
2: Sure. So, Tiger Woods, uh, he was physically precocious. At at seven months, his father gave him a putter, uh, not intending to turn him into a golfer, just as a toy. And Tiger started dragging it around in his little baby walker, and ten months, he climbed down from a high chair and imitated the swing. He saw his father practicing. Uh, by two years old, he's on national television in front of one of a famous U.S. host showing off his swing, and you can go see that on YouTube. Uh, by three, his father starts media training him, you know, how to answer reporters' questions. And you fast forward to age 21 and he's the best golfer in the world. And this became essentially the most famous development story, development of expertise, both inside and outside of sports, sort of at the core of about a half dozen bestsellers that are that are both inside and outside of sports and very well known, of course. Roger Federer, on the other hand, was also a good young athlete, um, but he played – uh, basketball, badminton, table tennis, swimming, wrestling, skateboarding, skiing, handball, um, a little rugby. I'm probably missing some soccer. Oh, sorry, football. Yeah. Um, and he he didn't specialize. So he his mother was a tennis coach, and she refused to coach him because he wouldn't return balls normally. When his uh, when his coaches wanted to bump him up to play against older players, he declined because he just wanted to talk to his friends about pro wrestling after practice. And actually, when he finally got good enough to warrant an interview from a local newspaper and they asked him what he – if he ever became pro, what he would buy with his first hypothetical paycheck, he said a Mercedes. And his mother was appalled and asked if she could hear the interview recording and the reporter obliged. And it turned out Roger had just said Mercedes in Swiss German. He just wanted more CDs, not a Mercedes. Um, and so it was a very different, different story. And my question was which one of these is the norm? We, we know one. We don't really hear about the other. Which does science say is the norm?
0: And the answer is?
2: Is the Roger Path. So pretty much everywhere you look, in pretty much every sport, athletes who go on to become elite have what scientists call a sampling period where they play a wide variety of sports. They learn these general physical skills that scaffold later later learning. They learn about their own interests. They learn about their own abilities. And they systematically delay specializing until later than peers who plateau – Um, At lower levels. Not only is Tiger uh, an outlier, but golf is an outlier of a skill compared to most other sports. So it's not only most other sports and most other human activities. So in many ways, it's a particularly poor example that we've been extrapolating from.
0: Sure. Okay, now that leads on to the next uh, explanation that we need, which is the difference between a kind world and a wicked world. So essentially, kind world is the golf world and tennis is more wicked, right?
2: Right. Right. And so these are these are terms coined by the psychologist Robin Hogarth. So he would call golf what's called a kind learning environment, which means um, all the information is available. You know, people are taking turns. Uh, Patterns repeat. You're trying to do sort of the same thing over and over. Next steps are very clear. Um, Every time you do something, you get automatic feedback that is 100 percent accurate. That's a that's a kind learning environment. That's like the definition of golf. Other sports tend to be more dynamic you have to learn what's called anticipatory skills where you're actually using the arrangements of bodies and flight of balls to, to see what's coming before it happens because it's actually happening too fast for our for our reflexes to, to react to and they're more dynamic you're, you're often as the game gets to higher levels you're facing challenges that you've never seen before at speeds you've never seen before so most other sports are are, are more wicked where you, you the patterns don't just simply repeat. You might not always get exactly perfect feedback about what you're doing. Uh, exactly what you should do next might not always be clear. You have to make some sort of equivocal decisions. And so that's a more wicked learning environment. But that said, in the wider world, most of the things we do are even more wicked than that.
0: Yes, and that's the key point, isn't it? And just something to pick, pick you up on. Billie Jean King famously said what she loved about tennis is no, no shot comes over the net the same way twice. And that's exactly what you're talking about in terms of tennis being wicked, whereas golf, the ball is always there. It's not moving. You're not having to deal with that kind of thing. So, yeah, you were getting onto there how the world is more wicked than kind. So, so what, what is the relevance then of, of um, the difference between golf and tennis in this example?
2: Yeah, so the, the problem is that we've used golf as this to say, OK, if you just specialize in something um, really early and really narrowly, you, you can do that in anything you want. But in most of the rest of the world, we're in these comparatively wicked learning environments where, in fact, doing things like that, specializing too early is the thing that you can do to cause the quickest short-term improvement, specializing, often undermines your long-term development in more wicked domains because for more wicked domains, you need to set up these broader skills. So there's a classic research finding that can be summarized as breadth of training predicts breadth of transfer. What transfer means is your ability to take your skills or knowledge and apply them to situations you've never quite seen before. So, so not to do something repetitive, but to transfer that knowledge to new situations. And, and your ability to do that is predicted by how broad your training was, so how many different contexts you are attempting to problem solve and, and apply skills to. And so if you're in a domain where you're not just doing the same thing over and over – and if you are by the way you know you 're a lot more in danger of, of being automated, so if you 're not, you want this breadth of training because that predicts that 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 builds these sort of conceptual broad skills that you can then apply to things you 've never seen before
0: uh, if we apply a, a bit of this to two things first of all, chess and yeah. then then the secondly was uh, music now obviously we chess masters are these guys who are always able to think or women able to think you know several. Uh, moves ahead, but actually, that that is another example of a of a kind environment. And just explain what happened when, with the when it was all sort of jumbled up and thrown up in the air, and, and what it showed about chess players. Even
2: yeah, so this is so so a, a grandmaster's advantage over a lesser player is their ability to um, recognize patterns, recognize repeating patterns. So, for example, in the nineteen forties, in a series of famous chess experiments players of different ability levels were given chess boards. And then the boards were taken away and they were asked to recreate the entire board from memory. Grandmaster chess players could do that perfectly after seeing a board for three seconds, right? So they see the board three seconds is taken away and they can recreate the entire thing. Lesser players couldn't do that. And so naturally, these scientists concluded that grandmaster chess players have photographic memory. So they would recruit people to train to become grandmasters Um, based on their memory tests. But then about two generations later, those studies were repeated. And this time, there was a wrinkle added where the players also got boards that sort of, to a non-chess player, looked okay but actually could never occur in a game. Something was wrong. And in that situation, the grandmasters were stripped of that photographic memory. They were no better than the novices turned out they never had photographic memory at all. In fact, they were doing what psychologists call chunking. They had learned to recognize groups of pieces on the board uh, that, that signified certain patterns they had seen a lot, so they didn't have to memorize all these different pieces individually, they could just memorize this small number of familiar chunks. And so that's sort of the core of expertise in, in chess, this kind of pattern recognition.
0: And that applies in music as well. So you gave the example of if someone is really great at remembering music, they're not good at remembering music if the format is atypical.
2: That's right. So I used I I looked at some research, particularly even on even on musical savants. So if you've ever heard of these are people who um, have this sort of outlandish uh, talent in music that outstrips everything else they do, where they can often repeat pieces upon hearing them. Once, basically, totally yeah. verbatim, and so it was assumed that they basically also liked the chess masters. It was assumed that their their memories were essentially a tape recorder, you know, and they were playing it back. They would hear it perfectly, but again, when scientists uh, studied them with a wrinkle added, where they gave them types of music that were what called what's called atonal, you know, basically doesn't follow the normal harmonic structures, and and, and notes might sort of come out of out of nowhere, which if they had a tape recorder of a memory wouldn't matter but in fact it it mattered a lot and they were relying on familiar structures not just remembering everything that went on.
0: And that relates as well to for example computers because you say that so there's all this fear isn't there about computers kind of taking over the world and uh, the power of computers growing and growing and growing but currently Computers are like those chess grandmasters, aren't they, insofar as they can recognize patterns, but to just the nth degree. But in wild situations, they're still way behind humans. Have I got that right?
2: It, very much so. So in chess, right, chess is kind learning environment, enormous store of past data. The core of expertise is pattern study, which is one of the reasons why we have more young grandmasters than ever is because of the availability of computer chess. You can start studying patterns very early early specialization works in chess by the way mm-hmm. if you if you haven't started pattern study by about the age of 12 your chances of reaching international master status which is one down from grandmaster drops from about 1 in 4 to about 1 in 55 so it works because it's a kind learning environment and and that's also why it's set up so well for computers because they're extremely good when you have a situation where there's tons of previous data and the future looks exactly like the past so that's perfect for computers but when it's when it's a different challenge um, so Google Flu Trends, for example, Google applied their, a- their AI to try to predict the spread of the flu in the U.S. And when they did it the first year, it was this huge uh, headlines because they did it faster than our official authorities. But each year it got worse because the world changes in a way that chess doesn't. And about uh, several years after it debuted, it missed by 100%. And if you go to the Google Flu Trends page now, they've shut it down. It just says, it's early days for this kind of work, so uh, we're not going to do it right now. Because that's an environment that does, doesn't just simply repeat. So, you know, to, to put an exclamation point on it, one of, one of the uh, researchers I talked to, um, so it, IBM's Watson AI has been like a total flop in healthcare. And, and one of the researchers said, I, Watson was so good at Jeopardy and so bad at medical research because we know the answers to Jeopardy already. It's useful in so far as that it can supplement, but not replace the, the sort of higher human skills. And in fact, early in the book, I discussed where when Gary Kasparov was beat by Deep Blue, you know that, that sort yeah. of uh, that was, okay, computers have taken over, but he got an idea from the way it played to promote these freestyle chess tournaments where humans could combine with computers. And the winners of the tournament were two amateurs with three computers. They beat the best supercomputers. They beat the best grandmasters, and they beat the grandmasters with the supercomputers. So it was this whole different set of skills where they outsourced the pattern recognition to the computers, the, the stuff that requires years of, of study, and focused just on the higher level strategy, which, which humans are uniquely good at. You mentioned chess players getting better
0: younger. And mm-hmm. this brings me to something you mentioned in the book about how IQ scores, which we think of as fixed, have actually been going up each year. Um, subsequent generation isn't it and um, you gave this um, first of all can you explain what's going on there and how this applies to what we're talking about but then also can you relate it to those agricultural types that you mentioned who when they were sort of asked questions that you and I or or anyone listening to this would, would think oh that's a really simple question they couldn't get their head round the imagination required to answer it properly
2: Right. That the, the rise in IQ scores over the 20th century that you're referring to is called the Flynn effect for the guy who discovered it, James Flynn. And, and it's not just a rise in IQ and it's like the whole curve shifting, right? It's not just one part of, of the curve. It's the whole curve shifting. And it's a specifically on the most abstract parts of tests. So not like the stuff that you're learning in school. So a very famous IQ test is called Raven's Progressive Matrices. And all it is is these series of abstract patterns, and one is missing, and you're supposed to look at the patterns and fill in the missing one just by deducing the rules. And that test was created to be what's called culturally reduced, meaning it shouldn't depend on anything you've been exposed to in life. It's like a pure test of cleverness. So if Martians land on Earth, this is the test we can give them to figure out how bright they are. And paradoxically, that's where the biggest gains have been. So about three points per decade um, over the 20th century. And why is that? That was a huge question of why would it be on this stuff that is the least taught? And it turns out that when, when James Flynn dug into this, he came to believe that it's because of the way our, our, sh- our thinking has had to shift to accommodate um, the complexity of modern work and our need to constantly be learning and learn how to do things without being told the rules. And some of the research he he first cited was done in the Soviet Union in the 1930s by this brilliant Russian psychologist Alexander Luria where Luria recognized a national – sorry, a natural experiment that he could use where um, remote areas of of, um, what is now Uzbekistan were being uh, nationalized essentially, turned into like national agricultural and industrial areas where they had just previously been subsistence farmers. And he went out there to see – so some of the people were already being sort of brought into modern work and some of them were still in the in the subsistence farmer state. And he went out there to compare and see how will this change alter the thinking of, of these people. And what he found was that – the, the people who had to live in a more concrete daily existence, right? Like the knowledge they needed to survive was very concrete and practical. Like how could you use these tools and these animals and those sorts of things? And so when, even when he was giving them the instructions for these sort of cognitive tests, like he would give, okay, um, hammer, uh, axe, saw, bird. Like wh- which one of these doesn't belong in the group? And they would say, you know, well, maybe the hammer, but I guess you could use it to hammer the axe into the bird, so that, um, you know, could work. But everything they thought was in, in these practical terms. And if you ask them to try to apply any of their knowledge, again, this is transfer to situations they hadn't directly experienced, they could not do it. So even things like if they were given us shapes, like a square with solid lines and a, and a square with dotted lines. Well, one was obviously a, a map and the other one uh, was a clock. They, and they, so they would never group them the same, whereas the people who were engaged in more modern work, even if they didn't know the names of the shapes, they would recognize that there was something abstract about them in common and could group them together. And the more they engaged in modern work and self-directed work, the more they were able to do that abstract thinking. Um, And so Flynn calls this seeing the world through scientific spectacles. And what it allows us to do, this isn't to say that one type of thinking is better than the other. They're just adapted to different circumstances. And the kind of thinking that's adapted to our circumstances allows us to build these abstract conceptual models so we can think about things we've never encountered and so that we can take skills from one kind of work and transfer them to another type of work. So the, the more we've grown into a knowledge economy, the more we're able to actually move latterly, laterally along different different types of work because we have these these conceptual models that we can we can transfer between types of activities and problems.
0: And so abstract thinking is key. And this is a theme that sort of comes up, doesn't it, throughout the throughout your book as well. It is about that adaptability and it and how we start in the first place. So you talk we, we've touched on on Tiger, you know, being groomed from this early age to be a golfer and Roger not. Um, but having that breadth of experience at the, at the start being absolutely key and you tell an interesting story flipping over to music of the musical starlets in Venice who mm-hmm. lived in an, in an orphanage um, and they were played behind the screens because a lot of them were um, riddled with all sorts of venereal diseases and whatever else but they were so good because of their, the breadth of um, experience they had early on with a number of instruments
2: yeah, and these were these were so, you know, in 17th and 18th century basically Venice had a very vibrant sex industry. And one of the problems they developed was that the daughters, particularly the daughters of, of a lot of sex workers would would be dropped in the canals. Um, and so they established these social the very progressive social welfare institutions where basically um, someone could take a baby, and it was kind of like when you have to use the the luggage tester to see if you can carry your bag on the airplane. Where in the at the institution, there'd be uh, like a notch in the wall, and if the baby could fit in that, then they would take the baby and raise it forever, no questions asked. And they wanted to these these girls to become um, sort of self sufficient, if possible. So they would teach them skills, you know, laundering silk, uh, becoming pharmacists, whatever. And the institution started accumulating instruments, often donated. And so they would have the girls try to learn them. And in fact, they would have the girls try to learn every single instrument that the institution owned. Some of those instruments are we – we still know the names, but nobody's even quite sure what they are anymore. There were lots of experimental instruments. And in doing that, they sort of accidentally um, got really, really good – and would start playing performances, and the governors of these institutions noticed that the donations went way, way, way up as this music got got better. And so then they started getting even more instruments, having the girls learn all of them, and they became the, basically the best performers in the world. And um, composers started vying to to be able to compose for them because they could play so much different stuff and learn so quickly that they provided essentially a musical laboratory for composers. And one of the composers who earned the right to do that was Antonio Vivaldi. So he became the exclusive composer um, for these, these orphans. And, and in doing that, basically, um, he, he essentially revolutionized the concerto, you know, the, using the virtuoso soloists. And those original virtuoso soloists were these orphans of the Venetian sex industry. And the unusual thing about their training was the was the breadth of instruments that they had to learn early on.
0: Yes, and that's the key point, isn't it? So kids to excel, let's say at a musical instrument, the key thing is what so it's having the broad experience, so playing as many instruments as you possibly can without like huge amounts of pressure in terms of practice. And then at some point they're going to find something that they love. And then from that point, that's when they'll zero in, which is kind of what happened with Roger Federer, right? He was doing all these different things. So breadth of experience early on, that is key.
2: Yeah, and, and I think there are two separate issues that you, if I can, can I bring them up separately sure, that yeah. you mentioned there? So And, of course, after, after that story, I talk about the actual you know modern research on, in, on musicians doing that same thing. And so just like athletes... Um, modern musicians who go on to become experts tend to have this so-called sampling period where they try different instruments. So even even musicians who are known for being really good young, like Yo-Yo Ma, who did indeed get very good young, but nobody ever talks about how he went through two other instruments first and didn't like them. And so he moved on from those. And that turns out to be a pattern partly because as you're doing this sampling, there are two things going on. One is that you're looking for match quality. That That's the term economists use to describe the degree of fit between an individual's abilities and their interests and the work that they do. So you'll see in some of these studies that, you know, one kid, like, practices a ton, but they weren't always that way. It's like they were sort of not practicing that much on other instruments. and Then they find one that they fit well with, whether because of their interest or because of their, their talents. And then their practice takes off, right? This gets this idea that when you get fit, it looks like grit, as one of the, the researchers said, where when you put someone in a good spot, they, they work a lot harder. So there's the, the match quality issue but there's also this this deeper theme that you're getting at that runs throughout range which is whether it is sports whether it's music whether it's learning math or or other kinds of problem solving this this broader experience early which often slows down your initial progress is is what allows you to create these more conceptual models that you can then apply to situations you haven't seen before so um, you know, it, it, Actually, one of my, the most sort of startling studies in the book to me kind of hit on that note, but, but I don't know if, I'll, if I should go on about that point. Go on, though. go on. Okay. So the, the study at the Air, U.S. Air Force Academy that looked at um, teaching, the effect of teaching on, on math learnings, every freshman class that comes in there has to take a sequence of three math courses. And it's an amazing experiment because they are randomized to the teachers in calculus one, randomized in calculus two, and then randomized again, and they all take the same test. And what the researchers found was that the professors who were the best in calculus one at getting the students to overperform compared to the characteristics they came in with also undermined those students' future development. So those students then went on to underperform in all the follow-on courses. The better a teacher was at getting the students to perform well in in the introductory class, the worse those students did in the follow-up classes. And the researchers concluded that's because the way to get the quickest improvement in your own class was to teach this very narrow curriculum of what's called using procedures knowledge, which means how to execute certain procedures. Whereas – the professors whose students didn't do as well in their class but went on to do much better teach this making connections knowledge where they, they have much broader problems and they connect multiple ideas and the learner gets frustrated. They rate the teacher worse. They rate their own learning worse. And then they go on to overperform in subsequent classes.
0: So basically they're learning how to learn. And you talk about, you know, the importance of, you know, ch- challenging and frustrating learning in the short term. Um, learning slow, I think you call it. yeah. And then that benefits because, actually, even though you're going through those feelings of frustration, you're learning to learn. And in the long term, it's going to pay off big time.
2: Yeah, it's just a difficult, you know, and and this is a real theme, is the things you can do for the best short-term improvement, whether that's an athlete. Like, we now know that the way to develop the best 10-year-old athlete is not the same as the way to develop the best 20-year-old athlete. And it's exactly the same for learning other things. But it's a problem because... The learners themselves are fooled, like when they're frustrated early on, they rate their teacher lower, they rate their own learning lower, but then in the long term they they do better, and that's deeply counterintuitive frustration, difficulty, in learning is not a sign that you aren't learning, but ease is that's tell you,
0: that's a good one to remember uh, and and you talk actually about that even applies with monkeys is that is that fair <laughs> like so you, yeah. they didn't they do some vocabulary really vocabulary test and they were given... Yeah. Anyway, pick up. Explain
2: how this even applies to monkeys. Yeah. So this was two rhesus macaques named Oberon and Macduff. So o- Oberon was a little brighter, so he did better on everything. But um, they were made to memorize these lists of images. So on a screen, it would be like, um, you know, flowers, fish and Halle Berry and all this stuff like that. And they would have to hit the, the uh, images in an a particular order and then they were supposed to memorize the right order essentially and on some of the lists they got hints on what was the next image they should hit every time on some lists they could get hints if they wanted but they weren't automatic on others they could get hints half the time and then on other lists they got they were allowed no hints and in training they did horribly on the lists where they got no hints as you might imagine and they practiced them each like hundreds of times these lists and then come test day they were, all the hints are removed and they're no longer allowed to have any hints. And And there was exactly reversed relationship where the more hints they had had in training, the worse they did on the test. And the fewer hints they had had on training, the better they did on the test. So there was a perfect inverse correlation between how poorly they did in training and then how well they did on the test. And that's because this effortful attempt to generate a solution called the generation effect without getting hints is what... Primes your brain to learn when you are then given the answer. So we should actually be testing ourselves before we know anything when it's frustrating and we're getting everything wrong instead of like when we're ready to perform well.
0: Yeah. So here, here in um, Britain, there's a lot of um, people who feel that kids are tested too much. So do you think then on that basis that the focus is a bit wrong that people should be taught or at schools students should be taught to learn rather than focusing on passing tests.
2: Yeah, I think it's a difficult issue because the way – tests are a great learning tool because of that generation effect. The problem is that's not the way we're using them. We're just using them for evaluation and, you know, maybe the kids even find out what they did wrong like much later. That's not a good way to learn. Um, and so if we could use it for learning, I think it would be great. For evaluation, the problem is – and again, it, it the problem causes the same thing we saw in the Air Force Academy where you can get people to do well in the test. that undermines their long-term development. And it's the same thing we see in a lot of sports development where if the coach of the, t- of the eight-year-olds, if, if his job is, his incentive is to win the eight-year-olds championships, then that's what he's going to do, even though that's not the best for the longer-term uh, development.
0: It's interesting. You made me think there of the difference between Brazil and England when it came to football. So there's often been, whether it's a myth or not, the idea that youth groups playing football, soccer, in England kick it up the field get rid of it don't let anyone score whereas in Brazil at an early age they're encouraged much more to express themselves and be creative and that plays out or the impression has been that that plays out later on in senior teams in that Brazil by this point then are extremely creative and and, um, daring whereas English teams are far more straight-laced and buttoned up if you like. (laughs)
2: <laughs> well, every, everyone likes to be critical of their own team, but um, it is, if you go to Brazil, the kids are ba- mainly playing futsal, right, where small ball on, stays on the ground and they're playing on sand one day and cobblestones the next day and very small areas. And so it's they are diversifying their problem solving. So this whole thing about sports sampling, I don't actually think it matters, and I'm speculating a little here. If you play multiple sports, I think that's just a proxy for the diversity of movement and types of problem solving. So if you can get that within one sport, fine. And I think that's really what what futsal does. And I think that's why France, you know, decades ago started reforming its football development pipeline to emphasize these principles where small-sided games, you know, different number of players, different size of space all the time, lots of unstructured play. One of the guys who helped design it has this, this quote, there is no remote control, by which he means the coaches should not be trying to micromanage the players. So the coaches actually aren't allowed to talk most of the time. And so I think you can have an official pipeline system that, that incorporates a lot of these best principles, but, but most don't.
1: This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive in June. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss.
0: Now, before we get on to kind of how this really applies to someone listening, particularly I'm thinking of people who are just starting out in their careers, there's a couple of other bits I want you to explain. So you talk about interleaving mm-hmm. and also thinking outside experience. So just explain the, the relevance of those two
2: Please. So interleaving is is a form of of studying, and and to explain in context, I'll I'll explain like a really uh, kind of phenomenal recent study that that just came out, and this study was on seventh grade math learners, and um, seventh grade, so that's like twelve years old or something like that, eleven or twelve, and um, one they were randomly assigned to different types of. Of learning environments, and and one group had what's called blocked practice, where they get a problem type, problem type A, for example, A A A A A A A, do it till they master it. B B B B B B B, do it till they master it, etc. The other other classrooms were assigned to interleaved practice, which means it's all mixed up, you know, A C C B whatever, and maybe some other things thrown in, and and as all of these principles we know of good learning. The interleave, students with interleave more frustrated, you know, harder learning, slower initial progress. Then comes the test where everyone has to do problems um, that they haven't exactly seen before. And the interleave group blows the block practice group away. The, the effect size was so large that it was about on the order of moving a kid from the 50th percentile to the 80th percentile. Even though they were studying the same material, but one group was studying in a way that, that slowed them down and made it a little more frustrating but cause them to build those conceptual models where they're learning to match a strategy to a type of problem instead of how to execute a procedure.
0: Okay. And in terms of thinking outside experience as well, you talk about, um, is this the malignant stomach tumor conundrum? (laughs) This is amazing. Let's just do this. So someone listening, uh, if you just, let's run through this. If you're listening to this now, see if you can answer this first question and then... Take it away, David. Oh, gosh,
2: I should have brought the book so I could read it. Okay, the the first question is basically, okay, you're a doctor, and you have a patient who has a malignant stomach tumor, and there is a type of, of ray that can destroy the tumor. The problem is, at sufficient intensity to destroy the tumor, the ray will also destroy any healthy tissue that it passes through, and if... At low intensity, it won't destroy healthy tissue, but it also won't destroy the tumor. So how can you save this patient without also destroying healthy tissue? Okay, that's, that's so
0: important. at this point, I was I was reading the book, thinking, hmm, you know, and I I sort of was staring at the walls in my bedroom, thinking,
2: right. I okay.
0: <laughs> spent a fair bit of time trying to work it out, got absolutely nowhere, which I, I think I'm fair. I think it's fair to say most people don't. So I felt a bit better about that. And then you give another story which may help people reach the conclusion. Go ahead.
2: So this other story. So once upon a time, there was a, a brutal dictator who occupied a neighboring country and. An um, in, in army who came to try to overthrow him and, and uh, restore freedom um, had to capture one fortress in the middle of the country and they had enough soldiers to do it. The problem was all these little roads that led out like the spokes of a wheel that led to that fortress were strewn with landmines. And if they marched all of the soldiers down any one of those roads, they would set off all the landmines. So you could only march in sort of single file or two by two Um, down each road. So after thinking for a while, the general of that army decided to split up the army into small groups and have them all march down different roads and converge uh, at the fortress at once. And and they did that and overthrew the dictator. Okay, we'll just have a brief pause
0: for anyone listening to see whether or not on the basis of hearing that they are now able to solve the malignant stomach tumour conundrum brief pause okay story three just quickly David this is okay. at the point it took all three for me to actually und- to get it
2: okay story three so there was once a, a fire in a, a, a barn and a bunch of there was concern that it would spread to neighboring buildings and and so neighbors of the owner were coming and throwing buckets of water on the fire and they couldn't get it to co- go out and so then the fire chief came and said stop doing that everyone go fill your bucket in the lake come back here get in a circle, surround the barn, and when on the count of three, we'll all throw it once. And they did that, and it dampened the fire, and the fire chief got a promotion.
0: Okay, so at this point, suddenly, the penny drops, and it's like, okay, well, in fact, you explain what the conundrum is, and then can you explain then why those two stories, which are analogies, aren't they, how they help solve the actual uh, malignant stomach tumor conundrum?
2: So initially when people get the radiation problem called the Dunker radiation problem, almost nobody solves it. And then with each successive analogy, more people solve it. And the, the basic concept is that when you need to apply um, a strong force basically, but, but you can't do it all from one direction, uh, arranging the forces around the, the target so that they converge on the same spot. Um, may work. And so the way you can save the patient is by taking each of the low-intensity rays, arranging them around the patient and having them converge on the tumour so they pass harmlessly through the healthy tissue and converge on the tumour and destroy it.
0: Okay, and that's the power of analogy. So this is abstract thinking, essentially, in action, isn't it? It's our ability to... So unlike those agricultural people who are only able to see things in in that very specific way... Is able to take a story and apply it to a, a problem completely apparently unrelated.
2: Right, right. And so in studies when people are given these analogies, they start suddenly solving the original problem even though they say they didn't use the story. And, and separately in, in other studies when they're given, when they're told to just generate analogies, right, they're not given these fully formed stories. If they, The more of them they generate, the more likely they become to, to find something where the deeper structure of the problem suddenly resonates and they solve the original problem.
0: So let's sort of bring this together then. So what we're talking here about people getting, um, you know, using analogies from one area to to apply it to another. And the whole point of your book is about getting as much broad experience as you can, right? And actually, I have to say, you made me feel really good because I've always had this kind of Mm -hmm. unexamined shame in my life. I did uh, journalism at university and then... Um, spent let's say a few years that i've considered for a long time probably up until i read the book in the wilderness where i wasn't focused on my career and i was doing various other jobs that didn't seem particularly relevant but actually it's actually a good thing to get as much experience as you can because you're going to be picking things up uh, uh, along the way Uh, and if you feel like you're starting late it's nonsense because let's take the example of van gogh he he meandered all over the shop, and yet he's like hmm. the greatest artist of all time.
2: Yeah, and, and when you said that you were out in the wilderness, for a second I thought you meant the literal wilderness, because <laughs> I, I was living in a tent in the Arctic Circle when I decided I was going to try to become a writer, um, you know, and didn't occur to me that that experience in science when I got to Sports Illustrated would mean that my very ordinary science skills suddenly became extraordinary in this other domain, right? And Van, Van Gogh, he um, had about five careers uh, before. He, he tried to draw a little bit as a kid, and he didn't like what he did so he basically ripped up a picture of the family cat and decided never to draw freehand again um well for a long time and he went through being a, a student uh, an art dealer um and it, at each of his jobs he would say i found i found it i'm never he would write his parents and say i'll never need to look for work again he was an art dealer uh, then he was uh, a teacher he was a bookseller uh, he was training to be um, a pastor, then a preacher, then he became a catechist and went out to coal country and all these things. And every time he would say, I've found it, this is it, this is the thing, and throw himself full, and he had amazing work ethic. And it was only after he failed um, at all of those things where he was out in coal country and looking up at the coal-blackened sky, and, and he had said when he arrived, gosh, it would be nice if, you know, there were an artist out here because they could really capture this sky. And he has nothing, he has no possessions, His his ministry is over, and the only thing he can think to do is is try to draw the life around him. And he, he at you know about the age of 27, buys a book called The Guide to the ABCs of Drawing um, and, and starts at it. And he's actually terrible at drawing. He says, you should only draw people. You're documenting human experience. And he's not good at that. He's not good at contours. So then it's only nature. And he bounces from one artistic experiment to another. And then basically in like the last two years of his life, um, alights on this style that combined all his previous learnings that is totally unique and creatively explodes and changes what artists do uh, forever, essentially. When he was 33 years old, he, he tried to take one formal class and he was recommended to go back to a class with, with 10-year-olds. So, um, you know, he had, if not for the last two years of his life, he, he may have been like a historical footnote, if that.
0: Yeah, so he is an example that actually having a meandering career it is, there's nothing wrong with that. And also thinking that you have to be at a certain point at a certain age, that's also not true. Because I remember finishing university and the, the night I finished, I went to the pub and I, it was like staring into the abyss thinking, God, I, I don't know exactly what I'm going to do. And I have cousins now who are in that similar situation. I always say to them, even before I read this book, don't worry, that there's no hurry at all take up until you're 30 even just to experiment and do stuff and then this book's come out and you've explained that that (laughs) i was absolutely spot on with that
2: you you know yeah i'm I'm glad i can uh, give you some confirmation bias here (laughs) Um, but it's interesting i was just at this um event hosted by this group called the motley fool which is this famous kind of investing um uh membership group and and publication uh and before they, they put up a poll that that people attendees could see on a screen and vote on their cell phones. And the question was, what do you think the average age of a founder of a blockbuster startup company is? 25, 35, 45, 55. And the overwhelming favorite of the crowd was 25, right? And and we think that, right? When Mark Zuckerberg, the CEO of Facebook, was 22, he said young people are just smarter. But but that's why I discuss and range this research, recent research from MIT Northwestern and the Census Bureau that showed, in the U.S. at least, the, the average age of a founder of a blockbuster startup on the day of founding, not when it becomes a blockbuster, is 45 and a half. They usually have to zigzag quite a bit before that, before they find that ground where they can do something uniquely. But, but just like with the, the Roger and Tiger story, we only hear these ones of these very young people and these very dramatic successes, even though those are not the norm.
0: So this sort of idea that we need to be... Uh, achieving something by a certain age let's say 25, 30 is actually nonsense and the more people can get it out of their head the better
2: I mean, there's no use in feeling behind, right? And so um, you you should compare yourself to yourself yesterday. So the people in this study that I love, that I really identified with because of my own career zigzagging uh, by these Harvard researchers called the Dark Horse Project that looked at people who find fulfillment in their work. Many of them were very financially successful, but that wasn't a prerequisite. Um, It was just fulfillment. And basically what they did was they forsook these long-term goals, right? They forget about the university commencement speech where they say, picture who you're going to be in 10 or 20 years and walk confidently toward that. And their common trait was this kind of short-term planning where they say, here's who I am right now. Here are my skills. Here are my interests. Here are things I want to learn. Here are the opportunities in front of me. I'm going to try one, and then maybe a year from now I'll change because I will have found something better or learned something about myself. And they keep doing that zigzag until they, they triangulate good Good match quality, and they don't spend a lot of time worrying about who's younger than them and has more than them
0: interestingly as well you you talk about actually some of the jobs, for example, that someone might do that and just write off as well, you know that was just a period of my time, but I got nothing out of that you You argue that people do tend to take something of value from every job, so for example, Sorry to use me as an example again. I remember I was a, a charity fundraiser on the street. So there's a chugger here, which basically means I try and stop people to give money to charity. <laughs> and it really helped me actually in my later career when it comes to um, doing Vox Pops. So speaking to people in crowds with a microphone. And... To compare myself very uh, ridiculously to Steve Jobs, the reason that the, uh, um, all his various uh, Apple products were so beautiful in many ways was because of a class he'd done completely mm-hmm. unrelated, right?
2: Yeah, he, took a, he just audited, you know, not even for a grade, he took a calligraphy class because he was just kind of interested in it, and this university he was near happened to offer good calligraphy classes, and that gave him this idea to have uh, customized fonts, basically, of typeface. And so we went and started making all these attractive type phases for the Mac, and and it led them also to these broader ideas of okay, we should have kind of customized style, right? And and everything really changed because of that.
0: And so that that's that's a really lovely message, I think, isn't it? Because so for people like say just finishing university now or young people who are panicking, thinking I don't have the five year plan, I don't know exactly what I want to do. Think of someone like Steve Jobs. Think of someone like Van Gogh. And it's just about sort of trying as much as we can, um, just experimenting, right? And and you'll pick things up along the way. You'll pick up different ways of thinking and so on and so forth.
2: Yeah, and, and don't, don't even think about, you know, J.K. Rowling is obviously a famous one where she failed at a bunch of things first and then turned to, to, to writing, as, as she put it in a commencement speech. But don't even worry about thinking about, you know, Van Gogh. It's the research on... On modern people and a much larger number of people, for example, an economist who looked at timing of specialization for university students, and he wanted to see who wins if you specialize earlier or later. What he found was that the early specializers who pick a focus early do jump out to an income lead because they learn more specific skills for their domain, but the people who do a little more experimenting and specialize later learn more about their own skills and interests. They get better match quality. So when their growth rates are much higher, by year six, they've erased the income gap and meanwhile, the early specializers start quitting in much higher numbers because they were made to choose so early that they made poor decisions.
0: So they've got their ladder up against the, the wrong wall. is like that sort of saying, isn't it? You want to make sure you're doing something you love as well, which obviously the longer you leave it, the more... Well, you talk about, don't you, flirting with your possible selves, I think you called it?
2: Yeah, and this came out of the work from a, a woman I love who's actually at the London Business School uh, professor, Herminia Ibarra. Um, and she has this phrase I love. You learn, we learn who we are in practice, not in theory. And what she means is that all the psychological research shows that, in fact, we cannot just introspect into ourselves and learn about our potential interests and our potential talents. We actually have to do stuff, and that's how we we gain insight into ourselves, by doing things. Act first and then think, she says. And so... You actually have to go do these things. There's this whole industry of personality quizzes and things that, that, mm-hmm. that tries to convince you that you can take it, figure out who you are, and then go forward. But your insight into yourself is constrained by your roster of previous experiences. And it turns out we aren't even very good at understanding our own talents until we've actually gotten to try stuff. So that period of experimentation Um, It's an investment in long-term development.
0: And and the more experiences you have, the more things you're going to sort of soak up, and then you're far more likely then to stumble across something that actually does give you that sensation or that feeling of love, that feeling of, yes, this is it. This is what I want to do, which must be much easier to miss if you are specializing early.
2: Absolutely. So one of the – you know, I, I described some programs in the, in the military and range where they started losing their highest potential workers and first they – future officers, they, they threw money at them, right? And the people who were going to stay and liked what they were doing stayed anyway and the people who were going to leave didn't like what they were doing left anyway and that wasted a half billion uh, dollars of taxpayer money. And so then they started a different program called Talent-Based Branching where instead of saying here's your career path, go up or out, say here's a bunch of career paths. We'll pair you with a coach. Dabble in a bunch of different ones. The coach will help you reflect on how good a fit it was for you and will keep zigzagging you to get you this, this better fit because once you get fit, it looks like grit and they've had much better success with that than they did with just throwing money at people. Uh,
0: there's, there's a thing in this country about five-year plans and people, I always wondered, well, why don't I have a five-year plan? Successful people have five-year plans. Five-year plans are pointless, aren't they, on the basis of, what, of, what your, of your research?
2: I mean, I think it's fine to have a five-year plan if you hold it very lightly and are willing to willing to update it a lot. And it's okay to make long-term goals eventually. But those dark horses—those people who find fulfillment—and they're called the dark horses because they, that the project got that name because they all viewed themselves as coming out of nowhere and said, "Don't tell people to do what I did. I, I came out of nowhere." But they all say that. Um, so the five-year plan, you know. You should just hold it very lightly. You should keep in mind the so-called end of history illusion, which is this psychology finding that shows that we all recognize that we have changed a lot in the past based on our experiences and then underestimate how much we will change in the future. And we do this at every time point of life, underestimating how much we'll change in the future. So the further out you put this plan, the more you're in the position of choosing for a person that you actually don't know yet and given the rate of change of work, probably for a world you can't quite conceive yet. So it's a, if you make the right choice, it's probably just luck.
0: And Julius Caesar, you gave a nice <laughs> example of, of him. I mean, right, so Julius Caesar, when everyone talks about Rome, Julius Caesar is the name that sort of springs to mind. And this is a guy who had exactly that same feeling of like, oh my goodness, when am I going to achieve anything?
2: Yeah, and this was sort of just in a rhetorical flourish at the end of the book where I was saying, like, don't feel behind. And and Caesar, uh, you know, when he was a young man, two historians um, recorded that he, he saw a statue of Alexander and uh, cried because he said, you know, he had, by my age, he had conquered so many nations and I in all this time have done nothing. And uh, pretty quickly after that, that was a distant memory, he was... Um, the head of the Roman Republic, which he uh, turned into a dictatorship and then was murdered by his pals. So I think uh, like a lot of youth athletes with good YouTube videos, he, he peaked very early.
0: Okay, the key lessons here then, okay. Don't push people too early, too young into one particular direction.
2: Yeah, and it was particularly in, in the context of creativity where I was talking about that, where it's it's difficult to nurture, but it is very easy to destroy. and And the more restrictive the learning environment becomes, the more uh, the more likely you are to destroy it. And we're moving
0: more into a world where breadth of experience, um, knowing many little things, being able to think laterally, being able to use analogies is going to serve people better. It fits more to a wicked world. Is that, what, is that right?
2: Yeah. So this is the topic of, of chapter 10, the work of this psychologist named Philip Tetlock, where he, he wanted to see how good predictions were about political and economic trends and all these things. And he needed so many predictions because you have to tell unlucky from lucky streaks. So it took 20 years to do the study, 80,000 predictions. And it had to be accountable, right? Not like when we see pundits on TV and they go like, there's a very strong possibility. Like, what does that mean? I don't know. They had to give specific probabilities of things happening. And what he found was that the worst predictors are what he called hedgehogs, these people who were very specialized. They worked in one area. In some cases, they worked in one problem. Um, for their entire career, and they came to see all of the world through the lens of one mental model essentially, and would bend everything to fit it. The the hedgehogs, and it it comes from this philosophy essay that says the hedgehog knows one big thing and the fox knows many little things. The foxes were these people who were much broader. If they had an area of expertise at all, they roamed outside of it collecting perspectives from people in other domains, they had very wide-ranging reading habits, they challenged their own. They viewed their own ideas as hypotheses in need of testing that they would take to other people as opposed to just the right answer. And again, they would, they would use the word however a lot more than moreover about talking about their own ideas. And they turned out to be such good predictors of, of trends in the world that they – these people, some many of whom were just drawn from the general public and had wide-ranging interest, they outperformed U.S. intelligence analysts who had access to classified data on what those analysts were trying to predict and they outperformed them by a lot. And so now the, you know, the intelligence community is engaging some of these, these sorts of people.
0: So we want to be more, no more little things. Is, is that, I mean, and you do say specialization is fine, but really it, the, the gist of it seems to be... The more little things we can know, actually, in the current world, the better.
2: We also need specialists. So as Freeman Dyson, the the physicist and mathematician, said, we need birds and frogs. The frogs are down in the mud seeing the details. The birds are up above. They don't see the details. But they can integrate this the larger knowledge of, of the different frogs. And we need both. The foxes needed the hedgehogs in the sense that they would go to them for information. But not for opinions. The hedgehogs were terrible when it came to prediction, what things that would change. So the foxes still needed the hedgehogs for for information. You know, the really dangerous thing is what Tetlock found in this work is that the more prominent a, a pundit, a, a person making predictions in the world was likely to be, the worse they were likely to be at making predictions. Because what makes them entertaining television is their ability to authoritatively give these predictions that conform to basically one mental model. So.
0: David, lessons then for parents, lessons for teachers, lessons indeed for people who feel they haven't made it and want to do something satisfying, something they love. So it just, if you were to sum it all up, the takeaways that we should all have, what are they?
2: I'll give you mine because I think it applies um, in a number of domains because I'm a new parent also. And, and first of all, I want parents to know that the way we tell the Tiger Woods and Mozart story, another famous one, are not quite right. In fact... In both cases, while those fathers facilitated a lot of training, they were responding to the child's display of unusual interest and prowess. So as Tiger Woods said, my father never once asked me to play golf. I was always asking him. It's the child's interest that matters. In Mozart, I was going through lots of letters and it turns out that you know he, he wanted to play with some musicians who came over, violin. His father said, nobody's taught you, you can't play. He started crying. So one of the musicians played with him and, and all of a sudden he stunned everybody. You know, you hear the music coming from the next room. So both, both, in bo- you don't have to worry about missing the next Tiger Woods or Mozart because in both cases, these opportunities were facilitated after they showed this strong interest. More often, for both myself and for my kid, I'm going to take the approach that I should be the role of that coach in what I talked about that the Army does called talent-based branching where open up a lot of opportunities to try things and then help – the kid reflect on each of those so they get the maximum amount of learning about themselves and their abilities and their interests and their opportunities with each one of those things that they try so they can continue triangulating where they fit. So that's where I see my role, both for my own career development. I have no idea what I'm going to do next. Truly, I never do. um, Well, not since I was a teenager anyway. and, And as a parent to be that coach role and make sure there are a lot of opportunities available and that the maximum learning comes out of each one. So
0: don't fret where you're at, just try lots of different stuff. It's, it's like a heat-seeking missile. You're always adjusting where you're heading, right?
2: Yeah, and don't don't fall prey to the sunk cost fallacy. This is the idea that con men live by this. They try to get you to give a little bit of money first, because they know if they can get you in a little, you'll say, well, I'm, I'm already in a little, so I might as well keep going. Think about it the same way with with work. Don't fall prey to the sunk cost. If you're, if you're thinking about changing, you probably should, and there's a period of challenge, but Usually when people change their work, they increase their match quality. So Steve Levitt, the Freakonomics economist, did this study where people changed or didn't their job based on the results of a coin flip. And, and these were all people who were thinking about changing. And the ones who, who got you – know, I think it was heads – and change their jobs ended up a lot happier. So the conclusion of the study was basically if you're thinking about making a change, you probably should.
0: And you talk about that challenging period and you say as well, when in that challenging period, companies or indeed people tend to do their best work anyway because the boundaries are out and, and you're in essentially a bit of a crisis. And that's actually when creativity tends to flourish than rather when it's all really safe and, and you've got nothing to worry about on that score.
2: That's right. So Bill Gore, who founded the company that created Gore-Tex, uh, you know, which is in so many things, he, he designed the company based on his observation that organizations usually did their most creative work in times of crisis because the disciplinary boundaries flew out the window and people started mingling and all this stuff. He said real work happens in the, in the carpool.
0: So, so Tiger and Mozart found what they love really early. And basically focused on it. Roger Federer found what he loved a little later, and really sort of zoomed zoning down on tennis relatively late compared to Tiger. And then Van Gogh found his passion really late, relatively speaking, because obviously they died when they were about forty. When he yeah, when he yeah. was alive. That's right. So so the, so the lesson there is: don't worry about it. However old you are, don't worry about where you are. Just keep trying stuff. Everything has value, and eventually, with a bit of luck, you will stumble across something you love. And that's when, okay, follow that and, and have faith. Is that it in a, in a nutshell?
2: Yeah. And but also that these experiences are not um, wasted. There are areas of the world where it is better to specialize. You know, I talk about surgery in the book where specialized surgeons have fewer complications. Um, and on top of even experience it's not just experience being specialized you know on the other hand they also do many many more unnecessary procedures so there it's a double edged sword but yes you can bring these these other learnings in fact in since the knowledge economy has exploded even in in technological innovation the people who have, are making the biggest impact now which is different from the past are not the people who have spent their life working on one technology, and these technological classes are designated by the patent office, but the people who have spread their work across a large number of different technological domains. And they often aren't inventing anything totally new, but they're just bringing knowledge from one area where it's ordinary and bringing it into another where it's less familiar. And I think that's a good analogy for uh, the way to work, where don't, don't think of it as wasted. You can take knowledge from something that was ordinary you're doing in, in one area and and it'll be less ordinary when you apply it somewhere else.
0: David, honestly, your brain amazes me. And even though I know you say that you don't know what you're going to do next, I hope you keep churning out books like this because they are absolutely fantastic. Um, and for anyone listening, perhaps who, you know, is is young, don't worry about it. Just try loads of stuff and you will find your way.
2: I agree. Well said.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of the Life Lessons Podcast. If you want to get in touch, please drop me a line via my website SimonMundy.com or on social media at SimonMundy.